Hello guys, today I want to talk to you about enzymes. So this is going to be the last episode of volume 2 and I hope we can now jump into the next one which is going to be genetics. So really cool and now let's talk about it. So enzymes are going to be these large proteins with a tertiary or quaternary structure and they are going to have a really special area which is going to be called active site and here is where some catalytic reactions will take place. So there is something called a substrate and an enzyme, right? So the substrate is going to be the molecule um, to which the enzyme is going to make like changes. And so th there's going to be a substrate specific for each enzyme. So it's like enzyme substrate specificity and they can only, well, enzymes can only make one type of reaction. So um, they're going to fold their polypeptide change, and so their 3D structure is going to change as well. And so they are going to weaken the bonds from the substrate, and they're going to turn it into something different. For example, um, glucose is going to join to an enzyme called hexokinase, and hexokinase is going to add an, a phosphate group from an ATP, and so it's going to uh, release two magnesium ions, an ADP, as well as a 6-glucose phosphate. So this 6-glucose phosphate is going to be a super highly reactive compound, which is later going to be transformed uh, by another enzyme into something different, and so it's going to be like a cascade of enzymes until, you know, it actually transforms itself into G3B. <laughs> but this is just a particular example. But now, by definition, enzymes are biological catalysts. So they're globular proteins that can speed up a biochemical reaction. You have to be aware of something that, that if they ask you to describe an enzyme, you have to say that they have an active site, that they are specific to a compound, and that they are globular proteins. As we discussed in another episode, globular proteins are the ones which play huge roles in metabolic reactions. And now let's talk about this, uh, which I was telling you earlier, which is called induced fit model. So as we already mentioned, well, first of all, before there used to be a theory called lock and key theory, um, which talked about the configuration of substrates which had to bind to the enzyme and so it would be like a lock and key. So one enzyme would be specific to the substrate and then a reaction would take place. But now we have seen that it is a similar process but it's not exactly like this. So a substrate is going to be attracted to the enzyme because of its chemical groups, right? And so they're going to bind, just as it was said in the lock and key theory. But what, the, what they didn't mention was that the enzyme is going to change its shape uh, before actually weakening the bonds of this substrate. So, therefore, you know, the shape of the protein is actually going to be different. And so this is going to be like the induced fit model. And then you can have an enzyme catalyzed reaction completed and you will release the products of the enzyme. So just to declare a catalytic uh, reaction, a catalytic, catalytic reaction, yeah, is whenever an enzyme releases two products out of uh, other products, right? So the key points of this reaction are 
Attraction, which is whenever the substrate feels attracted to the, well, gets attracted to the enzyme. Reaction, whenever the enzyme makes this induced feat. And so the substrate and the enzyme are going to form something called substrate enzyme complex. And then the last step is release. When the enzyme has finished its work, it's going to return to its original shape and it is going to release the products of the reaction. But obviously, enzymes work under certain principles. So exactly how do they work? Well, um, I'm going to put it to you in an analogy. Let's say that you are a university person and you actually want to buy a car, which is super expensive. So you need to invest a lot of money on it, but you don't actually have enough money right now. So you need like a type of credit so that this barrier can lower. You can actually afford your car and you can be happy as ever. So something really similar happens with uh, chemical compounds. So there is something called collision theory, which they might not ask you about in the exam, but I think it's worth it that you know it. And the collision theory runs under three key points, which is that um, in order for a chemical reaction to occur, there needs to be particle collisions. So particles actually need to touch each other, each other. Um, there has to be at certain temperatures so that, they, that, that the molecules can move at a certain speed. And also, the positive and negative charges of the different chemical compounds actually have to match. Because if you make a collision to a particle, but you know both of them have a negative charge, then nothing's going to happen. But if you make the collision with a positive and a negative charge, then they are probably going to react. So if you don't have these three points you're not going to be able to make a reaction happen. And this payment, this cost, is going to be called activation energy. So for some substrates, this activation energy is going to be super high and they will not be able to do it for themselves. I mean, they would be eventually, but it's extremely complicated that it happens and it will take a long time. So that's why we have enzymes. So what enzymes are going to do is to lower the activation energy and it's going to be a lot easier for this process to actually happen. And then the enzyme, you know, it's going to be back to its place. So if you actually wanted to graph this activation energy, you're going to put like a first like a straight line and then you're going to make like a huge uh, slope, like a big parabola, if you had uh, the normal activation energy. But then you are going to put a line that says enzyme on it. And so the parabola is going to be way smaller because the activation energy will lower. And in the end, um, both of the reactions will finish up yielding the same amount of energy. So by definition, activation energy is the minimum energy that reacting particles should possess in order for a reaction to occur. And these reactions can take... Um, can take two paths, let's say. So the first example I gave you in the beginning of the episode was about this um, glucose joining an enzyme called hexokinase and then adding an ATP, well, a phosphate from an ATP group. And so this is going to be called an endergonic reaction. So glucose in the beginning has a certain amount of energy, but once the, uh, the enzyme gives this phosphate, to the molecule, then it's actually going to have a lot more energy than it used to like before. So then um, the final product is going to be a more energetic one than it used to be. And so 
the other type of reaction is an exergonic reaction. So this is whenever there's like a type of catalysis. For example, if you have, I don't know, lactose. And so you're going to put it on an enzyme called lactase. And this enzyme is going to make the two molecules that lactose has into monosaccharides, which is glucose and galactose. And so this reaction, when you have tinier amounts, it's going to be called exergonic because you're actually going to release energy. So the way I like to see it is think about, I don't know, if you go to the gym, you're actually going to spend energy. Like you come here like super cheered up, you're going to be super happy. Then you're going to do whatever exercise you have to do and you're going to release energy in that process. Well, that's exactly the way exergonic reactions work. And then, well, <laughs> you're going to have less energy, obviously. And on the other hand, you're going to have endergonic reactions. So, for example, you are super tired and then you go and eat something. And because now you have more energy, then you will have acquired, you know, uh, this energy. So this is how I like to see it. And that's how I don't forget it. I hope it helps you as well. But now let's move on to what actually defines the rate of activity of enzymes. So enzymes can be either more or less active depending on four main factors, I would say. So it's temperature, pH, substrate concentration, and enzyme concentration. So in the case of temperature, um, there is going to be like a... If you wanted to graph the rate of reaction of an enzyme, like how active it is, you would first see it, see like a slope that is going up. It's actually increasing as temperature increases, like a positive correlation. And it's going to reach a certain point when it's going to be like in its maximum state. But if you go a little bit higher on the temperature, then the enzyme's activity is going to go like super down, <laughs> like literally no fix. Um, so this is what happens with a lot of enzymes in our body. So normally their optimal temperature is going to be 37 degrees, for human enzymes, as well as many bacteria. So a pathogen that you might have in your, in your stomach is going to work perfectly on this temperature, 37 degrees. But if you ask to, uh, to other types of bacteria, such as Thermus thermopolis, which does very well in 65 degrees, it's obviously not going to work inside of your body. The same happens with another enzyme called SAC polymerase, which is super useful whenever uh, scientists do PCR. So yeah, it's, I just thought it might be interesting to you. So now, another very important factor is substrate concentration. The way I like to see this is as if you were at university and you're in your first year. And so you want students to actually enroll, but there are no students that want to enroll and you have like 50 places free. But then you start getting more and more and more people. And so you fill up these 50 places and then even more people want to join. But because you don't have any more money, then you're not going to give them a place because you have 50 and that's it. No more. So eventually, if you wanted to graph this increase in people, then it would reach a plateau whenever you reach number 50. And something really similar happens with substrate concentration. So you're going to have, let's say, 50 enzymes like in a, in a region, right? And so then you're going to have 30 glucose molecules. So you're going to graph it at a certain point, but then you add 40, then you are 50. And so you're going to get to the maximum point and like maximum occupation of enzymes, which is actually called the max. And then you can have 60 or 70 molecules, but because you don't have any more enzymes, then 
the reaction's not gonna go up because there's no one else to work with them. Another really important factor is pH. So just as temperature, enzymes work in an optimal way depending on the pH they are in. So, for example, enzymes in our stomach, they were perfectly in pH of 2, which is super acidic because of their chemical groups, right? But if you go and see our enzymes in the small intestine, then they might probably work better at pHs of 7.5. And so, you know, it, it depends on which enzyme you are looking at, but the graph is going to look the same everywhere. They're going to start going up, 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 like a very high slope until they reach a certain point where they work optimally and then they're going to gradually go down. So it's going to be as if you graphed a mountain, you know, literally. And something else which is really important is the competitive inhibitors and non-competitive inhibitors. So um, this was not explained in the guide, but I have been asked about this one or two times in exams, so I guess you should know it. But basically, it's a very simple principle. Let's say that I build a bed for my dog, right? But then I adopt a cat. And so the cat actually sort of like goes inside of the bed, and so the dog cannot enter anymore. And it's something similar to what happens with competitive inhibitors and enzymes. So if you have a very similar molecule to the one that you need, it could be an isomere or something like that, a very similar molecule to the substrate, and it actually joins to the enzyme, then the enzyme is going to be occupied and the substrate that you need for real is not going to be there. So there's going to be like a ton of substrates around and nobody's, they're not going to be able to take any place because you already have like every enzyme occupied. So this can actually be reverted if you gather even more and more and more substrate until they sort of like push the competitive inhibitor out and they actually occupy the space that they really deserve. So it's in the case of the cat and the dog, let's say that the little dog actually fights with the cat or that you, instead of having one dog, get two dogs and so they're going to fight the cat and it will go away and the dog will have back its bath. And then we go to the other guy, which is actually the mean guy. The cat is really a good guy. But the mean guy is going to be called a non-competitive inhibitor. So a little secret, enzymes don't actually have just one side. They actually have two. One is called active side and the other one is called allosteric side. So if this little bad guy actually joins the allosteric side, then the 3D shape of the enzyme is going to change but not in the way that we want. It's going to change in the way that, the, that this evil molecule wants to, right? So it's going to make the enzyme like workless. It's not going to be able to do anything. So if the original substrate wants to bind to the active side of the enzyme, it won't be able to because you know the induced fit won't happen anymore and it's like a, like a little lock that you have there, but like it's it's impossible to do anything about it because... It's not like you can compete against it. Once it's done, it's done and that's it. So this is something that sadly happens, for example, with... Um, what was the name? Oh, yeah. Sodium cyanide. So what sodium cyanide is going to do sometimes is to join one enzyme that is really important to make ATP. And so once it joins, um, it stops the entire cascade. And so you stop producing ATP. And because you don't have any more energy, you actually die. So, yeah... 
Um, non-competitive inhibitors are way more complicated than competitive inhibitors. But having that covered, let's, that, let's now move on to denaturation. So yeah, these evil guys are not the only thing that can hurt your enzymes. If you get, for example, too much pH, well, not the ideal condition of pH or not the ideal temperature conditions, then uh, the protein is going to lose its tertiary or quaternary structure and it will become denat denaturized. Yeah, it's going to go through the naturation. So it's going to become like a linear change of amino acids, which has like no purpose at all. So your enzymes will be completely destroyed. And this is actually what happens when you have fever. Um, whenever you hit 40 degrees, your enzymes actually get denatured. So they stop working. And something similar happens to whenever you cook egg whites, for example. If you cook the egg, it's going to turn into a little white thing. Um, and so this white thing, it's actually the proteins being denatured. Sometimes it can go back. So if you stop having fever, you actually go back and you're healthy again. But sometimes it cannot be reverted, such as, you know, with sadly egg whites. But now let's discuss the enzymes used in industry. So we use it for everything, everywhere. Enzymes are, they do our jobs of everyday life. So an example of this is pectinase, as we use it in orange and apple uses, as they are clarified. We also use enzymes whenever we have washing powders or, I don't know, to make milk or to manufacture corn syrup. They are also widely used in industries such as medicine, fuels, agriculture, and even textiles. We also use them whenever we brew, bake, make cheese, and yeah, they're like a super crucial in human industry. Um, so if you want to, there's actually a table here where we talk about industrial enzymes. So for example, in the industry, it says protein hydrolysis, detergent, food processing, chemical or pharmaceutical, leather tanning, okay, biofuel, in the environment as well, in order to degrade residual waste, detoxify toxic substances, and in agriculture, to feed processing, animal feed additive, and as agro well for agro processing. So sometimes these enzymes have to be well, actually all the time, <laughs> these enzymes need to be kept in very specific conditions because of what we just talked about, and. So in order to avoid, you know, things getting out of control and as well as, you know, enzymatic reactions to keep them in a certain range, um, most people in the industry actually immobilizes enzymes. So they're put like in a surface and then you're going to pass whatever you need. And as enzymes are immobilized, you can have like every little factor controlled. An example of this is the methods of production of lactose-free milk. So, you know, lactose, lactase is going to turn into galactose and glucose. And the way they do this is by pouring milk that contains lactose into a, like a type of tank that is going to have immobilized lactase. And so as the milk flows through this tank, you can obtain lactose-free milk. They might also add it in the milk packages, but, you know, this is, I think it's, it's like way less common than the other method, right? <laughs> um, so now, something you might be asked, asked about in the exam as well is to design an experiment using enzymes. So for your 
dependent variable, you're going to have, I don't know, like the rate of enzymatic reactions, which is like, you know, for example, how many bubbles are produced in a minute or, you know, things that actually indicate you if enzymes are working or not. And for your independent variable, you can have temperature, pH or substrate concentrations. And you need to have about four to five different concentrations as well as your repetitions. Um, so some examples of enzymes are catalase, which its substrate eats hydrogen peroxide and it produces oxygen. Another one is lipase, which is substrate are lipids and they produce fatty acids. Pepsin, which works with proteins such as boiled egg whites and makes amino acids or very short peptides. As well as amylase, which works with starch and create, uh, creates maltose. So with this, we are done with enzymes, we are done with volume 2, congratulations guys for getting up to this point. And now we will continue to topic 3, which is about genetics. Actually, this is my favorite part, I think. Okay, so see you later guys, bye bye!